A mind-boggling statement Swedenborg made is that at death, we first start to live. While in this world, we abide by the laws of time and space, but once in the spiritual world, we gradually adopt a way of being that is according to the shifting state of our consciousness. And it is at this point that you could say our journey really begins. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. This week, Curtis and I launch a new spirit story and witness the power of prayer. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose delves into the nature of time and space in the afterlife and the stages of our process after death. Then we travel to June of 1709 and 1699 to peek into Swedenborg's university days this week in history. Hey, Curtis. Hello, Chelsea. Thanks for joining us again here to do another spirit story. Oh, it's an honor that that I was let back in. So we are starting a new spirit story this week. And in this one, in act one of our spirit story, it's another one in which there are spirits who are finding their way in the spiritual world or world of spirits. And they call on some heavenly help and we get to see what happens. So are you buckled in? Yeah, I'm. it's not going to be enough, but I am buckled in. Okay, good. Yeah, it never is. So let's begin. Here's what happens. On one occasion, I saw a group of spirits who were all on their knees praying to God to send them angels so that they could speak with the angels face to face and open up to them the thoughts that were in their hearts. So that's how it begins. And so here we've got Swedenborg seeing a group of spirits and... He just happens to come upon them in a moment when they seem very, you know, eager. They're praying on their knees to God to, uh, you know, be visited by angels to get to sort of open their hearts to them or something, which is so interesting. Assuming that they get an answer, which I bet they will. That's a great perk of the spiritual world, because I think we can be in that state here. Come on. I just just give me a sign or something in the movies. Yeah, but but here you might get a nice feeling or something, but you sure don't get what they're about to get. Usually. Yes. And that is how it seems to often go that it is. Yeah, you you say something, you know, something you call for with your whole heart just comes to you, it seems. So let's That's see so what exciting. happens. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know we haven't even started this story yet, but if you think about the the idea of being able to say cuz here it's it's just this massive confusion. I don't know who am I really looking to for great wisdom? Who really has it together? I can't just go to somewhere and know this is this is the core of of light and truth and everything. Good but point. there you can say I want to go to heaven and hear what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> it's just nice to be able to like have that kind of oh cl- that that's in the phone book. Right. Yes, no there's this resource there. And it's like, yeah, kind of clicking your heels together, you know, and here you go. So this is what happens next. When they got up from praying, they saw three angels in fine linen standing nearby. The angels said, the Lord Jesus Christ heard your prayers and sent us to you. Open up to us the thoughts that are in your hearts. So there you go. (laughs) What service. (laughs) So good. So the people say, Our priests have told us, they replied, that in matters of theology, the intellect is no help, 
Faith is what is needed, and an intellectual kind of faith is not well suited in these matters, they say, because it originates from and smacks of self rather than God. And they go on, We are English. We have heard many things from our own holy ministers, and we believe them. But when we speak with others who also call themselves Protestants, and with others who call themselves Roman Catholics, and with Protestant dissenters, they all seem well informed, and yet on many points they disagree with each other. Nevertheless, they all say, believe us, and some say, we are ministers of God. We know these things. (laughs) Yeah. I know that feeling. What we ourselves know is that the divine truths that are called the truths of faith, the truths of the church, do not come from one's native soil or by heredity, but they come out of heaven from God. They show the way to heaven. Along with good actions that come from goodwill, these truths become part of our lives. They lead us to eternal life. Because we have heard differing views of what is true, we therefore became anxious and prayed to God on our knees. So I love that they've already got a good sense about it, you know, but they are just sort of confused, like, well, then what do we make of all these differing messages that we keep hearing from different people, which I do feel like is very relatable to our day and age now. Certainly. And that they are with it enough. They've got respect for these self-proclaimed sources of information, these different Mm -hmm. religious figures, but are are the heroes in this story okay they they're they're great um these these protestant people and catholic people but we know enough to know that there's probably a bigger answer than all these and that's why we're going straight to heaven for it yes here's what the angels reply read the word and believe in the lord the angels said and you will see the truths that are to be part of your faith and your life The word is the only common source from which all who are in the Christian world draw their teachings. So, okay. Two members of the group said, we have read it, but we didn't understand it. (laughs) (laughs) That's clear. Raise your hand. Raise your hands. You know, yeah. Um, You did not turn to the Lord who is the word, the angels replied, and you had already convinced yourselves of falsities. Interesting feedback. Right. Constructive criticism, but a bit harsh, right? Yeah, that's right. And I just think that's interesting, turning to the Lord who is the word, you know, and not having these falsities already blocking their view. So, Well, I mean, there's, it's already, you can't take a fundamentalist view of it because I read the book. I read the book. What are you talking about? I read the book. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't really read it because you didn't turn to the Lord who is that very book. There's a little bit of grasshoppering in there. Yes. For sure. And so they already are humble enough to say like, well, yeah, we read it, but we didn't understand it, you know? Right. (laughs) Okay. So here, the angels go on. What is faith without light? The angels went on. What is thinking without understanding? It is not human. Ravens and magpies can learn to talk without understanding. This we can assure you. Every single human being whose soul desires, it has the capability to see the truths of the word in light. All animals know, just by seeing it, what food will keep them alive. We human beings are animals that are rational and spiritual. We, too, see the food that will keep us alive, not the food for our body, but the food for our soul, which is the truth that relates to faith, if we are hungry for it and ask the Lord for it. I want to pause there for a sec because I love that point that they're kind of affirming these people who are 
you know, hungry, having that hunger to say like, you have an intuition about the food that's going to keep your, you know, soul alive and you haven't found it yet. So that's good. You know, like you've got the right sense about it so far. Yeah. And did they, am I understanding it right that they're saying that that instinct can lead you to an understanding of the word? It makes me think yeah. that if the word is kind of like a forest, if you, if you are mm. uh, a modern citizen who doesn't have really survival training and you step into a forest, you don't know what to eat or what to do. Yes. But an animal in that forest by instinct knows exactly where to go to get this you know, seed that might be buried inside a shell, which might be hidden up in a, they know where to go. So is it like that longing for application to life and goodness can give you the instinct as you're as you're sifting through the forest of the word to be able to find what is nutritious in there. Yes. Oh man, that's awesome. I feel like that's such a great way to think about reading the word. That yeah, it's going to take that kind of a desire. It 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 responds to your desire and and when you have that, then yeah, you're going to find the parts that feed you. Uh, that's there, you know. So that's awesome. So it goes on. The true substance of any information we take in without understanding will not remain in our memory. Only words will remain. For this reason, when we angels look down from heaven at the world these days, we don't see anything. We just hear sounds, and most of them are discordant. So allow us, however, to list some teachings. So that is our pause for this. Oh, what? Act one. Oh, I was just, I was just like settling in to get some good old. Let me give you some bullet points about what's important in life. But hey, I know you know what that'll keep me coming back next week. Cliffhanger, because yeah, I want to <laughs> know what those teachings are. List some teachings for us, angels. That's our act one. A little shorty, but it's gonna get getting the ball rolling, and we get to look forward to whatever those teachings are that these angels are about to uh, lay out for for these people who are hungry for it in the afterlife. And so, yeah, thanks so much, Curtis. Oh, for sure. And I'm going to do my exercises over this week to be ready because I bet those are going to be hard-hitting yes. <laughs> yes. teachings. That's just the way, like, Swedenborg can be at his most powerful when there's just a little list that's like, you want? do you want life boiled down to these key points? Yes. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Okay, but first, before we go see where Swedenborg was this week in history, let's have our NCE Spotlight. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, thank you. Hey, so I just love coming here every week and getting to shine a light on the discoveries being made in the work of the NCE, and and especially just here, yeah, the insights that you get through your editing work. You're most kind to pay attention. Yes, to come visit. <laughs> We wouldn't want you to get lonely. That's right. What do you have for us this week? I am just reflecting on how amazing it is, the nature of these works. I've been there, around them for a while, mm -hmm. and yet there are always things that strike me as new. And so I have three little nuggets that just struck me as new this week in what I was reading, and they all relate to the world of spirits and heaven, because that's a lot of what Swedenborg's talking about. 
That's great. I just love to think of them feeling new to you, you know? So if they're feeling new to you, I can only imagine how they're going to land with me and all the rest of the people listening to this podcast. (laughs) One of the things that people have often asked me about is what's the deal with time and space in the other world? Yeah. Because Swedenborg will say oh, there's there's not the same kind of time and space in that world as there is here. It's more about your state and so on. But then, especially when he's talking about the world of spirits, he'll say, this lasted for half an hour, or this happened yeah. on December 13th at 8 o'clock in the evening, or things like that. that. Yes. Wait a minute. I thought you just said, you know, it's different. And this passage seemed to shed a little light on that situation. The Secrets of Heaven 2625 in the first subsection there. Great. There are two things that seem indispensable to us while we're living in the world because they are hallmarks of our nature. Those two are space and time. <laughs> to live in space and time, then, is to live in the world, the physical world. Both disappear in the other life. But then he adds a little caveat here. Hmm. In the world of spirits, they still seem to exist because spirits recently released from their bodies bring with them a mental image of earthly phenomena. But eventually, they realize that no space or time exists there. Instead, they have states. States in the next life correspond to space and time in the physical world. Wow. I've even wondered, you know, sometimes when loved ones have passed on to the other world, for the first few weeks or a month or something, I I feel their presence. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it gets a little more abstract. It's hard to describe. You know, you still think about them, but... I've wondered even if whether they're more accessible when they're more in the state of space and time in the world of spirits. And then as time goes by and as they get closer to heaven, uh, they move into a a different approach to that whole thing. I don't know. It's just intriguing. And I also, just to like interject here too, it makes me think about um, how common... It is in this world for people to wonder about like, wow, what if all of this wasn't, you know, wasn't this like set in stone, there's time and space and everything. What if it was all this sort of way more malleable thing? And it's just like, well, it's a hard argument to make when it's like you you've got, you know, the material world that has laws and physics and everything, you know, like it makes sense and there's cycles to it and everything. But that it almost feels like an intuition about how things work in the world of spirits, you know, that we are kind of set up to lend ourselves to maybe thinking beyond the limits of of time and space and more in that state-based way. Right. And it's very intriguing to me that um, what seems to take away that sense is when they realize that they don't exist, you know. You know, once you see, oh, when they realize, oh, okay, um, it seems to change their state. So that's really interesting. Interesting. That it's based on their consciousness yeah. as it evolves in the in the other world. Hmm. I was reading also recently about states, difficult states in which people are uh, 
I, I was reading about Ishmael and his mother Hagar, and at some point they're banished and they go out into the wilderness and they almost die out there. Right. And Swedenborg's talking about that that is certain states that we go through either in this world or in the other world, where we are deprived of truth. They went through terrible thirst. They didn't have enough food and so on. They were out in the wilderness. And he says, this is hmm. what happens to us when we're, when we're deprived of truth. So we've known certain things and we felt pretty sure about them. But then we come into a state of doubt and even to a point of despair where we're just not sure anymore, where we've lost that sense hmm. of certainty that we used to have. And so Swedenborg writes in 2694, subsection 2 of Secrets of Heaven, people undergoing this kind of devastation or purging are reduced even to the point of despair. And when they reach that stage, they then accept comfort and help from the Lord. Hagar mm. and her son get help and they come back to life kind of thing. Eventually, these people are taken from that state to heaven where among the angels, they essentially relearn what there is to know about religious goodness and truth. Hmm. I was really interested in that. It almost seemed like a concrete analogy of if you're, I don't know, painting a piece of furniture or something like that, you'll, you'll strip it down until it looks hideous, you know, to get rid of the old paint or whatever was on there and then and then you you build it back up again and so they get deprived of this mm. even to a point of despair and then they relearn it i i'm just really interested that there's a relearning yes. involved in this and then they're more certain about it like oh no it is no that you know some of what i had in my mind is right and i think about swedenborg himself because he went through a major process of like, oh, everything I know is wrong. It must have felt that way to him sometimes. Yes. And when, it, he's, when the spiritual world opens up to him, it's like, I've got to start over again here. I don't even know who the Lord is. I don't know yeah. what the Bible is. I don't <laughs> <Yes>. know anything. <laughs> and I think even that might describe the state of the newcomers to the afterlife that we were just reading about in the spirit story is they are like, oh, there's all this truth coming from all these different people, but what is really true? Like, it doesn't sort of describe as much of, like, the devastation and, like, the vastation and stuff that you're that this mentions, but that same idea of relearning from angels, like, okay, this is what's actually true. I thought I overheard an interesting conversation from out in the hall <laughs> yeah. that does seem to fit. <laughs> you know, there is some parallel there. Yeah, yeah. And one final little nugget. Great. This is 2699, subsection 2. Uh, again, talking about these people who go through this really difficult time, especially for people who love truth and have been seeking it, mm. which was true of Swedenborg. You yeah. know, he was a scientist. He was interested in everything. And and so to get to the point where you feel like, I don't know anything, you know, it's it's very hard. And this is particularly in the other world where people go through this kind of devastation. There's a beautiful statement about what happens afterward that I never remember reading mm. before. After the ones in the other world that have been devastated and purged have been comforted with the hope that they will receive help, 
the Lord takes them up into heaven. So he takes them from a condition of shadow, which is one of ignorance, into a condition of light, which is one of enlightenment and therefore renewal, and accordingly into a joy that touches their inmost depths. And then Swedenborg adds this little statement about what happens to some of the people, not Hmm. everybody apparently, but some. And I never heard this before. Some travel around to different communities of angels and are welcomed lovingly everywhere as sisters and brothers. There, any kindness that can grace their new life is performed for them. So to me, that's really moving to think about where you go through this gut-wrenching time of, I I thought I had a whole structure in my mind. I, I really don't know whether I know anything anymore. I imagine some people listening to this podcast have been through something like this because you Maybe you always suspected that, well, I don't know, that doesn't make sense, but here comes a different idea and it's, well, now what? I'm, I'm dizzy. Yes. You know, there's yes. so many different ideas on the table and what's, what's true. And the idea of getting to the point where it's just beyond my imagination to think of being taken around to these different communities of angels and you're feeling nothing but humble. You've been <laughs> crushed, right? <laughs> yeah. And then you go there and they go, oh, your family, I love you. We love you so much, you know? And you yes. get this sort of love tour where you, yeah. you go to this community and that community <laughs> and they want to do anything for you. And that's where you get put back together. You know, they give you what you've been longing for. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how it really works. Let me show you, you know? Wow. Beautiful. That is... Well, I'm so full and satisfied with these gems you've shared with us this week. I love it. They're so great. Often it's just like reading words on a page, but now and then something just breaks through and grabs your heart and mind. And and it's so fun. Truly, it actually saves me time to talk to you about them because otherwise I'd be sitting there staring at them and weeping. You know? Yes. And this way I get to tell you have to somebody an outlet. and then I can, I can move on with my editing. So yes. thank you. We're here. That's great. Oh, I love it. So, so amazing. It's such a beautiful picture it paints of just like that's, that's the Lord's mercy and love, you know, is just beyond our expectations, just more than we can even fathom for ourselves. It's like we are that loved, you know, so that's that's so wonderful. Well, thanks, Jonathan. This has been great. And hey, let's you and I go back and join up with Curtis. Let's. All right. Hey there, Jonathan and Curtis. Hey. Hello. We have made it to the portion of the show where we go back in history to see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to. So this week, we, the first time ever in the history of this podcast, (laughs) we're going back to two years at once. Oh, I knew you'd had the time travel thing down, but, but dual time travel, that's impressive. Dual time travel. So we are going to both... 1699, really far back there in Swedenborg's life, and 1709. 
And so, yeah, we're going to the earlier part of Swedenborg's life because these two years and this week in history is both the time when Swedenborg first matriculated at Uppsala University and is the time of his graduation from Uppsala University. So we're gonna we're going back in time to uh, give some hearty congratulations to Swedenborg on both matriculating and graduating from Uppsala University this week in June. 1699 and then 1709. And for the people in the audience who think those are the same thing, I'm not one of them for sure. What's the difference between matriculating and graduating? Yes. So matriculating, I'll tell you this, using Swedenborg as an example. In (laughs) 1699, it's a little different than our modern era, but so at age 11, little Emanuel Swedenborg <laughs> began his studies at Uppsala University so that he matriculated there and it was it was June 15th of 1699 and in this giant like matriculation journal that the university had they would inscribe the names of the new little you know pupils and Swedenborg's name is there and next to it it says son of the primary pastor and professor a youth of the best talent Little 11-year-old Swedenborg. Yeah. He wasn't even Swedenborg yet. He was Svedberry. Yeah, and his... So the reason why it says the primary pastor and professor, son of the primary pastor and professor, is because Swedenborg's dad, Jesper, was a professor at Uppsala University and the rector of the cathedral of of Uppsala. So he's got his sort of... Everybody knew Swedenborg's dad. Yeah. (laughs) And the guy writing that little matriculation journal, if he hadn't said, a a youth of the greatest quality would have been in big trouble. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, with Jesper coming out. Don't you know who my dad is? Yeah. (laughs) And so this time, so we're going to give you like a little preview of or overview of Swedenborg's time at Uppsala University. And and so when he first matriculated there, um, word of the day, in 1699, he then became a member of, so one thing that they did, and Jonathan, you could probably say more about this, at the university is they had um, fraternities or what they would call nations, but there at the university, it was based on what province of the country you were coming from. So Swedenborg joined the Westmanland and Dalekarlian fraternity. Do I have that right? Do you know this information, Jonathan? Yeah, that's correct as far as I know. Nice. And so, yeah, so he joins his own, you know, house from the province of the country that he's coming from. And so also you can hear in those dates that his study at the university spanned many years. Um, and, well, 10 years. And so... uh He's going from 11, starting at age 11, and going all the way up to age 21. Um, and so really for us, that's like covers, you know, middle school, high school, and college, uh, practically. And something of note is just that at Uppsala University, he would have studied, you know, theology, law, medicine, philosophy, uh, certainly learning, getting versed in like Greek and Latin and the classics and everything. And something happened, a major event during his time at the university was in 1702, 
there was this horrible fire in Uppsala that burned three quarters of the town or city. I don't know exactly what you'd call it at that point. Um, in just like so fast in just 14 hours, the most of the place was burned down. And that included the cathedral that his father was the rector of and the home that the Svedberries lived in that they had just built uh, in when they had moved to um, to Uppsala for, for him to take up that job. That would be a pretty intense thing to have happen to your home and your school, the whole town, like the whole place just burns. So pretty remarkable moment in Swedenborg's time there. And actually the year after that happened, his father, Jesper, was actually appointed to be the Bishop of Skara, and which, how far away, that's like sort of far away, right, Jonathan? Yes, it is. It's sort of out in the heartland, a little closer to the west coast than the east coast of of Sweden. So it was, back in those days, it was a, a... quite a journey in a, in a carriage. Right. You know, it might have taken yes. a couple of days. I don't know. Yeah. And so so young uh, Emmanuel at this point, he is, he actually stays. This might be a good moment to pause and give you a little list of who Swedenborg's family was at this moment. Because um, when he was young, and we're actually going to cover this next week, Swedenborg's mom passed away and even an older brother of his. Uh, And then um, his father remarried. And uh, and at that point, Swedenborg had a number of siblings. So he had an older sister, Anna, and then a younger sister, or three younger sisters and three younger brothers, um, one of whom, though, died in infancy. And so when Swedenborg's dad moves to Skara, him and his stepmother take with them the two youngest girls, and then the rest of the kids stay in Uppsala, including Emmanuel, to live with his older sister, Anna, who at that point had been married to a guy named Eric Benzelius. And and this Eric and Anna, Eric's like 28, and Anna is a young mom and had just been married at age 17. Um, and they move into the home that they finally rebuilt after the fire. And and so in this household is Anna and Eric and the family that they're growing. And then Swedenborg and his, like, what is it? Four siblings or something. Could be a great sitcom. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so a busy time. And Eric... Benzelius becomes like a father to Swedenborg, like a second father, and is a, a friend of his. And um, and it sounds like he just had a really good, like, strong bond with his sister and then this brother-in-law of his. Um, and so that, he lives with them all the way up until the end of his time at Uppsala University, which is this week in history in 1709 now, because on June 1st, he defended his thesis which is sort of the crowning you know achievement of his of his time at Uppsala University and of all things amazingly his father comes from Skara because he's been appointed to be one of the judges of Swedenborg's defense which sounds a little intimidating to me but I'm sure that was just sort of 
I don't know, maybe, you know, exciting for Swedenborg to get to have his dad there to be a part of his uh, thesis defense. Yeah, it's hard to tell if it was an honor. Like, did that thing make things better for Emmanuel? Yeah, right. Because it's presumed that his father's going to be favorable, or was that really intense? I don't know, but the father made the long trip. Yes, and what he what he do- writes his defense on is called, or his thesis is called, Select Sentences from Publius Cyrus and L. Aeneas Seneca. And so he goes through and writes commentary essentially on these on certain maxims of this guy Publius Cyrus. Yeah, the um Cyrus was so named because he was actually a Syrian. He he was a slave and then he was freed because he was very, very clever and and won oratorical contests and things like that. And he wrote this series of maxims. And and Seneca also was well known for his hundreds of of pithy sayings. So I think it's very interesting that Swedenborg cut his teeth on quotable quotes. Mm-hmm. And and he wrote his dissertation about quotable quotes and then defended it to the panel. And isn't there some kind of debate around whether Swedenborg wrote his thesis or whether it was something he defended that somebody else wrote? Or uh, Because wasn't that the common practice that you actually defended your instructor's, you know, uh, thesis. Like that was part of your defense, but then Swedenborg may have kind of gone against the tide and written his own. Yes. It's a point that different scholars have different views of, but often it would be on a subject that was close to your advisor's heart. So Fabian Turner, I think was the name of his advisor. And so he may have gotten him started on this subject. But the fact that Swedenborg wrote that letter saying, hey, don't throw out those papers, I put a lot of work into that, is one of the indications that Swedenborg actually departed a little bit from usual practice and not just defended it, but actually wrote it himself. So say more about that letter. This was a letter from Swedenborg to um, his brother-in-law, Eric Benzelius, who is older and sort of a second father figure, as you were just saying. Mm Mm-hmm. And Swedenborg at this point, it was in July of 1709, so only a month after the time that we're talking about, and he wrote to his brother-in-law. He had gone back to Skara with his father to wait to go abroad for five years for his trip to, mm-hmm. you know, other places in Western Europe. And he wrote back to his brother-in-law and said, oh, please don't um, throw out my papers if somebody else needs my room there because I put a lot of work into that thing about Publius Cyrus. I should also say that Publius's technical name is Publilius Cyrus, but no one seems to be able to say two L's in a row, so he often gets (laughs) simplified to Publius. (laughs) That's great. Okay, so that is some evidence that Swedenborg may have been, did do a lot of the work of writing his, his own, that thesis himself. And in in one of his uh, Swedenborg's biographies, the Swedenborg epic, Sigstedt, the author, quotes a part of the thesis and lists a few of the different maxims that are included in it. And one of them is this, that stretching breaks the bow, the lack of it breaks the mind. And she goes on to quote and says, the contrast is very fine, Swedenborg here observes, as the bow is broken when stretched, so is the mind when loosed. <laughs> 
Exercise and meditation, therefore, is like food to the mind, and unless it is continually nourished and sustained, it will deteriorate. So if that is Swedenborg writing that, which it sounds like it very well might be, that's an interesting little window into, you know, him considering this this maxim. Arguably the king of meditation, <laughs> you yes. know, reflection and so on. And interesting that he says food to the mind, which is what, you know, you and I, Curtis, were just talking about with the, you know, having having a uh, sense for the for what's the food. Yeah. And would later become a major tenet of correspondences in the afterlife. Yes. So we know that Jesper is there and is a judge, you know, to be present at Swedenborg defending his thesis. And we know that his select sentences, so his thesis that Swedenborg wrote, he dedicated it to his father. And this is what his dedication was. May I grow with increasing years in the imitation of those deeds which have covered the name of my parent with honor and fame. May I resemble him in his writings as well as in mind and character. So that's a very sweet dedication. Nice. Awkward after his father slammed him during the uh, at the defense of the dissertation. No, we have no record of what the father said. He's like, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> no. And I thought we'd also just close it out with, or I'm happy to hear any thoughts you guys have about this stuff, but there was this um, at the very end, or not at the end, but in the printed version of, of his thesis, there is these... Um, verses that were re- uh, recited, I guess, on the occasion, but then were written. And they're written by a friend of his uh, who had graduated a few years before him, uh, Rosalius. And it's this little sort of poem that says, Thou, I am certain, wilt become a useful man to thy native land and an ornament to Christianity. The eternal muses cherish golden hopes of thee. So that those are this... Uh, this verse and that, um, you know, is fun to hear that written about Swedenborg when he's just 21 years old, graduating from the university, and he's got no idea what's coming. <laughs> and I believe that this Rosalius uh, later became a bishop himself. There was very lot of bishops in that. There were a lot of bishops in that family, and uh, he was one of the bishops that Swedenborg brought his works to later on oh. in the 1760s. So there was a connection, you know. Wow. Maybe Swedenborg could reference, hey, like, remember those verses? <laughs> remember you when you like said that nice thing now. about me? <laughs> <laughs> it seems amazing to me to think about Swedenborg's preparation. He often said later that he was prepared for what was, you know, what was to happen in his later life by the Lord. He could look back and he could see from an early age how he'd been prepared. And I think it's interesting to mm. think about him at the university, the influence of his brother-in-law on him, uh, his studying these quotable quotes and thinking about these maxims and defending them, uh, which later morphs into his quoting the Bible so much in his um, more scientific and philosophical period. He quotes other authors a lot. It, it just um, It's just interesting to think about his preparation. Yeah, and this time was really such a such a strong foundation for him and we didn't even mention it but his 
you know, before attending Uppsala University, he was being tutored um, by Johannes Moraes. Do I have that right? Yes. Um, and so he got, you know, it's amazing to think of him being there for 10 years at, at Uppsala University. But yeah, he, he got a very good education, which I'm sure set up, you know, a really good foundation for for what was to come. And a little tidbit is that uh, Marius was uh, the famous Linnaeus of the binomial classification system. It was his father-in-law. Uh, in other words, Linnaeus later married Marius's daughter, Swedenborg's tutor. Tudor's daughter. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's hard to say Swedenborg's tutor's daughter, but... <laughs> say that three times. Go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> Swedenborg's tutor's ditto. <laughs> Uh, well, fun to go this far back in history to the near the beginning of Swedenborg's life and explore his time at Uppsala University. And like I hinted at earlier, we're going to go even further back next week in the podcast. But this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Curtis and Jonathan. Thank you. Great fun. close out each episode of the podcast with a Swedenborg-inspired song. If you have a Swedenborg-inspired song you'd like us to share, you can email us at offthelefteye at gmail.com. You can submit your song that way, and if you give us permission, we would love to showcase your Swedenborg-inspired music. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. You're the best audience a podcast could ever have, so thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast to never miss when a new episode comes out. And consider supporting our work with a donation. Go to otle.com donate. Anything you give helps make the quality and impact of the work we do possible. So for this week, our Swedenborg-inspired song is by someone who, for me, is in the Hall of Fame of Swedenborgian musicians, at least by measure of her impact on my formative years. <laughs> her name is Heather Childs. And yes, that's a familiar name. She is related to Curtis. She is Curtis's father's sister. And she was a prolific musician before she died in her mid-40s of cancer in the year 2000 though I'm sure she has been creating amazing music ever since. I grew up memorizing and singing many of Heather Child's songs with a dear friend of mine, Adina Elder, and a favorite of ours to sing was this one called I Believe. Heather's heart shines through her music in such a powerful and inspiring way. So I'm Chelsea Odner, and I look forward to being with you next time we're Inside Off the Left Eye. But until then, here's I Believe by Heather Childs. Enjoy the music. I can hear
is drying with the sunlight coming on and I believe in the power of love to open up your soul I believe